Let us uh, pray one more time. God, as we have sung and listened and been, uh, sat, uh, waited, watched, listened, with a disposition of worship, we ask that you would continue to incline our hearts toward you and worship. Do that. Draw us to yourself. Open our eyes. Uh, give us uh, ears that are able to hear, minds that are able to be uh, full of awe at your goodness, your grace, your power, your truth, and your love as we open your word. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate from your word, May they be passed over, not even heard, quickly forgotten. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. So we're continuing this morning with our study of the Gospel of Mark. I'm grateful for Landon and Amy and their kids uh, lighting our Advent candle this morning and walking us through the meaning of that and really also Advent, uh, which is the four-week season leading up to Christmas, which since the Middle Ages, the church has observed with prayer and fasting until recently when prayer and fasting have kind of gone out of fashion. But for centuries, the church has had this season, kind of like Lent is before Easter, of Advent leading up to Christmas, a time of solemn preparation, contemplation, prayer, fasting. I know that continuing through the Gospel of Mark during Advent may be disappointing for some people. It's definitely more typical at this time of year to hear passages of Scripture from the Old Testament, from the prophets that point to the long-awaited Messiah, or maybe more commonly, frequently, to hear passages of Scripture read and taught and preached on from the early parts of Matthew and Luke, the genealogy of Jesus, the accounts of Zechariah and Elizabeth, Mary and Joseph, eventually shepherds, uh, angels and wise men, Bethlehem, a light, a star, etc. However, most of us know those short passages of Scripture pretty well because we hear them every year, preached, taught, read. What we hear less of is some of the more obscure passages of Scripture that get less attention because they are difficult or uh, confusing or obscure because they're difficult or confusing. As we've run across uh, some of these in Mark's gospel, and we'll run across more of them. And our inclination is to be drawn to the passages that are more often associated with December, Advent, Christmas. But these other passages that are less familiar to us are just as much God's word, just as much truth, and just as much the foundation of the faith that we hold. And so they too, even now, even during Advent, are worthy of our attention. And so that's why it's a good practice to periodically just study straight through a book of the Bible, as we've been doing, straight through a di uh, different sections of Scripture, so that we're not picking and choosing the passages of Scripture that we like, or that we want to hear, or that are good for us, or that we will accept while ignoring other truth. And yet, having said that, for the first time in our study of Mark's gospel, I'm going to jump over a passage of Scripture this morning. Last Sunday, we finished up 
Mark chapter 3, verse 6 was the last verse that we read. Verses 7 through 12 of chapter 3 are mostly a recap, and I encourage you to read those. They are mostly a recap or a summary of what Mark has said, told, written up to this point, reminding Mark's readers of where they are in the story of Jesus and offering a transition to the next section of Mark's gospel. I encourage you to read those verses. We're not going to read them this morning. Then the verses that immediately follow those, verses 13 through 19, I'm going to jump over those also this morning, but I'm going to circle back to them on January 10th on a Sunday that may be more appropriate for them. So that brings us to Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Finally, listen closely. These are the words of God. This is the word of God. Then Jesus entered a house. And it's probably likely that the house that Jesus entered into is Peter's house. Back in Capernaum that we read about in chapter 1, it's the house that Jesus seems to have made his headquarters in Galilee or around the city of Capernaum, which was kind of his home base for most of his ministry. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that Jesus and his disciples were not even able to eat. It was the opposite of social distancing at a restaurant or anywhere. People were so packed into this little house that Mark says it was almost impossible for them to get food to their mouths. When Jesus' family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. For they said, he is out of his mind. And your Bible probably has a little asterisk there by the word family, because the Greek text doesn't have the word family, but instead literally reads hoi par artu. In other words, uh, those of him, his own people, the ones around him. But since Jesus' family is mentioned a little bit later in verse 31, uh, explicitly in the back half of this literary sandwich again, Interpreters believe that Mark has Jesus' family in mind, but is being intentionally vague in order to include a slightly wider, larger group here. Still a sort of an intimate Jesus circle. Verse 21, when Jesus' family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the Greek word kratain translated here as take charge of him, occurs 15 times in Mark's gospel. And most literally or simply means to seize. Three times in Mark's gospel, this word is used when Jesus grabs the hand of someone whom he is about to heal or whom he has just healed. But the majority of the time in Mark's gospel when we see this word, including this one, this word is used in context of open hostility to Jesus. In other words, for example, when Jesus was arrested later on in the gospel. Here, Jesus' own people his family, and maybe those closest to him, come to seize him. Maybe his family has come down from Nazareth in the hills of Capernaum, around Capernaum, where Jesus was spending most of his time, down in Capernaum. And maybe they were concerned in love, in care about Jesus. Maybe, though, they feared that Jesus, their Jesus, had gone off the rails. Or maybe Jesus had become an embarrassment to them to his family, to his community, to his close friends, to Nazareth, to his little hometown. And they were trying to reel him in, kind of like an intervention. 
The scriptures seem to be clear that at least early in Jesus' public ministry, Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. They didn't think, they didn't believe he was Messiah. Of course, Mary must have known unquestionably, undoubtedly. But maybe Jesus' siblings, his younger step-siblings, may have been filled with resentment toward Jesus. Think about it for a moment. Jesus must have always brought home the perfect report card. Never once was sent to the principal's office. Everything he did was good. Now think about this if one was his siblings as a child, as an adolescent, as a teen. How all of this might have gone over having the perfect brother. And some resentment may have developed over the years in the minds of Jesus' very human and holy human brothers and sisters. And now from their point of view, Jesus is out of his mind. Literally standing outside of himself is what the Greek text says. He had lost his mind. He had lost his senses. He had gone berserk. Some translations say he was insane. Something had snapped. He had become a lunatic. What was he saying? And then there were the scribes who were the teachers of the Jewish law. Most of the religious, the most religious of the religious, we've already heard about them multiple times in Mark's gospel. Other times they've been lurking, they've been watching, they've been following Jesus at a distance. Sometimes they get close up to Jesus. They're trying to trap Jesus. Last week we read at the end of that section in verse 6 that they were already partnering up with an obscure group called the Herodians who had some power with the authorities. And they were trying to figure out together ways to now kill Jesus. Because Jesus was a threat all the way back to chapter 1. A threat to their authority. A threat we saw last week to their religious customs. A threat to their hold on power. A threat to their worldview. Verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem, geographically, elevation-wise, downhill, said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. That's how he's doing it. And the meaning of this Beelzebul is somewhat cloudy, sometimes given the meaning the Lord of the Flies. It seems a better translation might be the prince of demons. What we know for sure, though, is that during the period of Israel's monarchy in the Old Testament and also the succeeding Hellenistic period, the chief rival of Yahweh faith was the cult of the heavenly Baal or Baal. Fast forward to the New Testament and the chief rival of God, the God of the Jewish people, was Satan, who in John's gospel Jesus calls the father of lies. And so it makes sense that the two Baals, Baal and Satan, be understood as one and the same, which becomes apparent in the following verses where Jesus, who was and is a reasonable person, seeks to have a reasonable conversation with his accusers, the scribes, the teachers of the law. So Jesus called them over to himself and began to speak to them in parables. And this is the beginning of of a series of parables we see in Mark's gospel. How can Satan drive out Satan? 
And here are the three mini parables. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house or a household is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself, in other words, opposes his minions, evil ones, demons, and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. In other words, Jesus is saying, I know you'd love to paint me as some sort of demonic being or friend of demons, being the devil himself, even the father of lies. But fellas, that's really not going to hold up for you. It just doesn't make sense. It's not logical. Everyone will see around it. The scribes of the Pharisees, teachers of the law, were fabricating fake news. And Jesus said to them, you can say this all you want. You can even believe it if you like, but saying something is true doesn't make it true. And the people and you yourselves can easily see that this isn't true. You can't call me the father of the demons if I am casting them out, putting an end to them, squashing them. It doesn't make sense. Now remember in Mark's gospel that Jesus begins his public ministry by preaching and casting out a demon in one of the synagogues in Capernaum. To the modern reader's surprise, including some uncertainty about what to make of all the demons, Jesus began his public ministry in Mark's gospel by casting out an evil spirit, and he continues to do so. How could he be the father, the leader, the czar of these evil spirits? How can a person be considered evil if that's what they're doing? And the answer is he can't. It doesn't work that way. And yet here's the deal, folks. Jesus doesn't force himself on people. Jesus' family and friends treat him like a lunatic. The religious leaders seek to portray him as a liar, as a deceiver. But rarely in Mark's gospel does Jesus make a big fuss about who he is or insist that people understand him a certain way. Trusting his father, Jesus allows people to come to their own conclusions about him, at least at times, at least for a while, at least within some parameters. In the words of one commentator, Jesus submits himself to the judgment of the crowds, the religious leaders, the disciples, and even his own family. Through the text of Mark, he submits himself to our judgment as well, yours and mine. The evidence he presents consists of deeds and words of power and authority, but his stance of awaiting our response is paradoxically one of lowliness or humility. He subjects himself to the possibility of being misunderstood. He allows for that. The present text reports two erroneous judgments about Jesus. In other words, that Jesus was a lunatic or that Jesus was a liar, but thereby points to us a correct understanding of who Jesus was, of who Jesus is. In his book, Mere Christianity, the English author, scholar, professor, one-time atheist, and we must say also theologian C.S. Lewis wrote these words. He wrote, I'm trying to prevent anyone here saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher. But I don't accept his claim to be God. 
That, Lewis writes, is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice, Lewis writes. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so Mark also gives us, gives the reader the freedom in some ways to think of Jesus how we will. Just as Mark tells the story of Jesus' family and closest friends accusing Jesus of this. And the scribes of the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, accusing Jesus of that of being a lunatic, of being a liar, neither one of which really hold water. Lunatics don't do the sorts of things that Jesus did. People who are crazy don't love generously. People who are crazy don't have power to cast out demons. Jesus was neither a liar because the things that he said, he did. He spoke things, and they came true. His words were truth. He was not a liar. And so we have what has been called C.S. Lewis's, or what he popularized as a trilemma. Either Jesus was a lunatic, but it really doesn't look like he was, or Jesus was a liar, spoke untruth. But that doesn't really hold up either. Or he was Lord. Lunatic, liar, or Lord. And interestingly, in this passage, how people, and through the Gospel of Mark, how people read and see Jesus, and Jesus leaves open some possibilities, and Mark leaves open some possibilities, is largely due to who they are, how they are their own needs, their own past, their own perspective, their own worldview, what they want to be true, what is convenient or helpful for them. And this passage calls us to reflect on our own lives as well. How have we seen Jesus? How have we opted to see Jesus, understand Jesus, think of Jesus, describe Jesus, in ways that are maybe convenient to us, easy for us, natural for us, in contradistinction to maybe the way and the person whom Jesus really is. Whom Mark begins his gospel, you remember saying, the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. What are we going to do with Jesus? Bringing this home to where we are today. There's a movie clip, and I'm not going to reference it because there are 
It's a little crude in places. But we'll say it's a Will Ferrell movie. Where around a dinner table, clearly the role, the character that Will Ferrell is playing, likes the baby Jesus. Maybe isn't interested in the grown-up Jesus. The Jesus of the Gospel of Mark. The Jesus who gets under people's feathers. The Jesus who may embarrass his family. The Jesus who threatens our own power or authority. But the infant Jesus, he's, he's more manageable. He's cute. He's sweet. We sing carols to him without a threat of him speaking back. As we go through the rest of Advent, as we move toward Christmas, the Gospel of Mark calls us not only to the infant Jesus, but especially to the grown-up Jesus, to the fully mature Jesus, to the Jesus who is interacting with people, to the Jesus who is acting, who is loving, who is doing, who is proclaiming, to a Jesus who will eventually be nailed to a cross for the sins of the world, for a Jesus who will also be resurrected and live. And in these ways, affirm even more so who he is, Lord. And so as we move through Advent, as we enjoy this season, as we more and more as the days and the weeks move by, get into the Christmas spirit. Let us also remember who Jesus was and respond to him not as his family or brothers and sisters did at first and not as the threatened scribes and the Pharisees did in the, at the beginning, but let us respond to him in the Lord as Lord. Let us sing, let us worship, let us bow down in the midst of all of the Christmas season. Let us make time to give glory, to sing praise, not just on Sunday morning, not just on Saturday evening the 19th, but may our whole lives be an offering to the King who has come, to the King who is coming. This is truly a season of worship of adoration and praise. We know this most poignantly when we follow Jesus. As I said at the beginning or earlier on, there's a, another of Mark's literary sandwiches in this passage. Mark begins by telling us about Jesus' mother and brothers, his family, his closest friends. Then he jumps to, in his account, to Jesus' interaction with the scribes of the Pharisees. But then he jumps back also at the end, in verses 34, 35, 36, to uh, Jesus interacting and talking with and about his mother and brothers. It goes like this. A crowd, verse 32, was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. They themselves haven't yet been able to get back in. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus responds, who are my mother and brothers? Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And the takeaway from that is, Jesus isn't dissing his family. He's not saying that family doesn't matter, but he is saying 
that in relationship with him and his father, what's more important than blood is doing the will of his father. In other words, following him. In other words, being inclined toward him in a way that says, I'm on board, you are Lord, I will go where you go. And Mark says in Jesus, Jesus says in Mark, that as we follow Jesus, as we live in him, we come to know who he truly is most clearly. When we do the will of the Father, then we are able to say most confidently and most joyfully, He is Lord, He is Lord, He is Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, during this season, help us to live in ways in which we do the will of you, Jesus Father. Help us to walk in his steps, to follow him, to seek him out, to understand through self-reflection the ways that we're inclined to see Jesus, and then to allow the Jesus of the Gospels, the Jesus who heals, the Jesus who comforts, the Jesus who disrupts, the Jesus who sometimes disturbs to be the Lord whom we follow the Lord on before whom we fall on our faces and proclaim you are king you are king you are king and in all these things God be glorified Father Son and Holy Spirit Amen